It's good to be back with you guys. I decided to, uh, earlier today, I just kind of got inspired partly by that song, um, but also something that has kind of been in my heart for a while, wanting to finish the study in Acts that was started five years ago, uh, but I wasn't able to finish uh, due to other circumstances, which part of which uh, I'll talk about today. But this study in Acts, even though we're picking it up in chapter 21 tonight, um, I'm just excited about it. I just, you know, I've read Acts before and been through studies in Acts, but something about this time, even five years ago, reading it and studying it and today getting back into it, it's just, there's something exciting about it. There's something exhilarating about seeing the way the early church actually did things, the way God prescribed things. You know, they didn't get everything right. You know, who does? Um, but just seeing the, the genuineness of the believers, uh, their faith lived out completely and sacrificially and something that is, I think, a lot more powerful uh, than we sometimes give them credit for. And not that it's their credit, it's obviously the Holy Spirit's work, but I think sometimes we, we come to the Christian walk, we come to church, we come to the Bible, and we expect less of it than what God actually has. We're, we're, we're fine with the kids' meal when God has a smorgasbord for us. That yeah, it's delicious, yeah, it's good, yeah, it's from heaven, heaven's table, but it's not all that God has for us in life. You know, like Timmy's been eating the little crunchies and the little, you know, puffs and everything, and he loves those things, those are good. That's right, buddy. But he's at the point where he needs to eat more, but he just wants the puffs, he just wants the crunchies. But he needs to start eating a fuller meal. He needs to get off the milk and get onto the meat. And in the Christian walk, that needs to always be our desire. If we start find ourselves not desiring food at all, then you know we're probably sick somehow. Or maybe we just don't always like Ash had salmon tonight and the smell of fish it just doesn't make me hungry. My appetite went away. So I'll, maybe I'll eat later when I'm at home, but I could afford to skip a meal. But tonight is we're at Acts 21, and hopefully we'll cover the first 14 verses of this longer chapter. The message title, I was really stoked about until I looked through the old messages and I saw that there's another one with the same, same title. But I think it's been long enough and I think it's pertinent enough in tonight's message where I can call it the same thing. It's Acts 21, 1 through 14, a straight course, two. <laughs> it's not a continuation of the other message, but it's the second straight course. Because I think, how often do we need reminder of the right direction to go? How often when you learn, you learn phase 10 the other night, I was questioning the rules of the game. Is this what I do? Is that what we do? We always need a reminder what the rules are. Even we know they are because sometimes when we get in a stressful situation, we got all the cards in our hands. We're, we're trying to juggle all this logic. Sometimes we need a reminder. You know, when I play this massive World War II board game, Access Knives with Friends, we're always reminding each other of rules because we've got so many units in play and so many things going on that we need a quick reminder of what's going on there. And even in projects at work, sometimes we have to go back to the scope or have a regroup in a meeting just to catch up and say, are we still on the right course? Because there's so many moving pieces. And don't we need that in life in practical ways, let alone in spiritual? So I think a straight course, two, is a perfect title for tonight's message. As we'll see, I'm not that creative. I pulled it right out of the scripture. But again, enough can't be said about taking the most efficient route. I can remember starting work 14, 15, 16 years old, and later on at the, working at a video store, and I quickly discovered 
that if I can find a more efficient way to do things, I'll have less work to do and it'll get done faster. So I'm always trying to figure out the most efficient way to do things. And I'll give you uh, a little glimpse into my uh, psychotic psyche to where even if I'm going outside and I'm in my office and I've got to get a bunch of things and get outside and put this away and do this, I'll fill up my short-term memory with the, the, the most efficient order and all the stuff as I get ready to go. And if I get distracted along the way, it'll all fall out of my head and I'll forget to do something. Case in point, uh, I was cleaning up my tools today uh, that I was just too tired to clean up yesterday. I just kind of piled them all in the trailer. Today I went through and put them all back in the right spot. But I'd gone, I had to make one more trip to go get something else to put back in the shop. And I got distracted thinking about the work I'd done in the truck and I wanted to hear the engine running again to hear the passenger side because there's a little leak over there. And I got totally distracted where I walked all the way back to the shop and I forgot to get the thing I wanted. So I had to do another trip. I was like, ah, oh, there we go. I had it all planned out. I couldn't even get it going. But when we take a vacation or a trip, we're worried about gas mileage, traffic, time to get there. You've got the Maps app on your phone maybe and it tells you the specific time, shows you the route, shows you alternate routes when there's a, a five minute slowdown ahead. You know, in the old days, you didn't have all that. You just had, had to go and you had to know. And I remember coming home from work certain days and there was only one way to get home and the traffic would pile up and all the back roads would pile up. So I knew there was no way around it. But even moving here, we had a certain amount of time to do it in before I had to start work, a certain amount of time uh, to get out of our old house and to get into the house here. And we had to make this cross country journey in just a few days with a trailer and kids and a lot of unknowns. So I was very uh, cognizant of the time. And, uh, you know, I feel if I didn't have that time crunch, we probably wouldn't have made it as fast because it, it gave me that motivation to keep driving just another hour, make it another, make it another city, make it another state. But even in the grocery store, I got it all planned out because I, I got four kids to feed. I got to fit it all in a cart. <laughs> um, but sincerely, uh, this is something that we take for granted, I think, sometimes spiritually. That we put so much effort into our practical planning, which is a good thing. Which, uh, you know, obviously we need to be ready to let go of our plans if God says so. But the Bible is very clear about being practically wise, about planning, about purposing, but just not putting all your faith in your plans and purposes. But I think on the flip side, we don't often put much stock in spiritual purpose, in spiritual planning, and spiritual efficiency on our path, on our course. And what should be a straight course turns into a wandering course, a meandering course. And some of us don't even get to where God had intended for us. And that's the most tragic thing. Trust me, God gives us plenty of signs and directions and exits. But previously, uh, most of this message is probably just going to be a recap, or at least a good chunk of it. And hopefully now I'm going to breeze through it. So maybe, maybe my path will be off a little bit. But remember that Acts is the work of the Holy Spirit. It's the Acts of God, of the Holy Spirit, through the church, through his apostles. They're just like Revelation is a revelation of Jesus through the end times. Acts is a revelation of God's plan and purpose for his people and his work of salvation on earth through the church. That in this church age from the cross into the rapture is when God has intended the church to be acting on God's behalf. That's how God is getting his will done on earth. Yeah, I'm sure there's spiritual things going on. There's angels and uh, the Holy Spirit's working and, you know, obviously God works and, you know... Uh, no one came to the room that I got saved the day I got saved. Jesus did. So I don't want to count that like it's all on us. But on the other hand, we're his, his desired vessel in these days. We're the primary 
physical body that God is going to use for these several thousand years. And that age is coming to a close, and they'll have other methods, as we'll see in our study in Revelation. But in the beginning, we see that Jesus, after the resurrection, ascends. Disciples are caught looking up, and uh, angels appear to them and say, hey, what are you looking up for? <laughs> go wait uh, until Pentecost. And go wait for the Holy Spirit before you try and do anything. You're going to mess it up. Unless we have the kickoff at work to tell us to get started on our project, we're not going to have any idea what to do. We're not going to know what the budget is, what the scope is, what, what we have to do. We can surmise by the job name or the client, but we probably just mess it all up and waste a whole lot of time until that initial meeting. And that's what the day of uh, Pentecost is. And, and right before there, while they're waiting, they're like me, they're probably type A, they always need to be doing something. So they try and pick a replacement for Judas. They try and pick another apostle. They try and fill a spiritual office, but they go back to their old ways, their fishermen's days. They, they, they crack out the dice and they draw straws. They say, oh, it's Matthias. And he's great and all, but I'm sure God used him. And God had a plan and purpose for him, but it wasn't for this empty spot on the bench. God had a plan for someone else, someone who wasn't even a qualified church leader, someone who would have made the final cut on their Survivor Series. He was an unbeliever. He was Jewish, but in fact, he was a Christian murderer. He was Saul. Now, this guy was out there murdering Christians, arresting them, thinking he was serving God, the last person on earth the disciples would have picked. And yet God said, that's the man that I'm going to use. And shouldn't that be an encouragement to us that it doesn't matter what our earthly spectrum is, what our earthly uh, credit is. God says, you're the man. You're the woman for me. And I want to use you. I have a plan for you. God planned this before Paul's birth. Paul just got severely sidetracked in life. And yet God would use all of that sidetracking to put him on, uh, I think, the straightest course that any of us could hope to walk. But Pentecost changes everything. And I'm reminded of Psalm 127.1 that says, Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. We may be able to build a church, but unless God is there, even if people are there, if God is in there, it's no good. And I'm sure somehow, you know, God uses these things. There's so many people come to faith and come to the Lord and God uses donkeys, so to speak, of people. But it wouldn't be so much better if the way they came to the Lord was through, they came through a legitimate way, but through a legitimate ministry. Because unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain, Psalm 127. But we also saw that uh, God appointed deacons and these, even the people who did the practical things at church around the ministry to minister to the widows and the others, were full of the Spirit. There were seven men full of the Holy Spirit. They weren't just Christians. They weren't just believers. These guys were so in love with Jesus and so full of God's Spirit because the apostles knew that unless it was by God's Spirit, even the smallest task was not going to be successful. Even the smallest task was not going to bring glory to God. It was not going to get done right if it wasn't done 100% by God's Holy Spirit. And, and how often our spirit is anything less than holy. It's... I want to get this done because I want to get it done. I want to do this because I want to do this. Or I want to stay home. Uh, to be honest with you, I want to stay home today. I've been discouraged about a lot of things lately. I spent some time with the Lord. It was like, nope, you're going to get up and you're going to teach tonight. I'm like, I don't feel like it, but what else am I going to do? What else am I going to do with my life? Even if this turned out to be all in vain, at least when it's over, I can go, I tried my hardest, Lord. I thought I was obeying you. 
Thank you for getting me on the right path. But man, if this is what, if this is what God has me for do, I don't want to waste a second. And I'm glad I can come back to Acts. I hope I can finish the study. I hope I can finish Corinthians. You know, if I die in a year or two, I want to be able to go, you know what, I finished those things that I started so many years ago that were derailed and taken off course by, I think, godly things. But we saw the deacon, Stephen, one of the deacons, the first martyr. The guy serving in church is the one who gives this amazing salvation message to the Pharisees and Sadducees, and in fact, whom Jesus stands up in heaven for. This wasn't an apostle. This was Stephen. We saw Philip taken off to the Ethiopian eunuch, this man who works for the, for the queen or the king, and goes back to Africa and brings the gospel to an entire continent. Peter and the disciples, they spread the gospel. They're in Jerusalem. People are being healed. I don't have money for you, crippled by the temple, but in the name of Jesus, get up and walk. Miracles upon miracles. And we take these things for granted. We hear about them. I know we know they're true, but somehow we think, oh, God's not going to do that these days. And he may not. He may never use an eye, you or I to heal someone who is a paraplegic or quadriplegic or with a crippled hand. He may never. But that doesn't mean that he won't. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't expect him to or want him to. And not at the expense of the gospel, but to support the gospel. And again, I think like we talked about probably years ago in the study, I think a lot of the reason why this stuff doesn't happen, at least in America, is because we've been so oversaturated with the gospel and we've hardened our hearts so much. God's like, even if I did amazing signs and wonders, you wouldn't believe and you'd attribute it to something else. No, the doctor did it. <laughs> God's like, the doctor had no idea what he was doing. He was half asleep when he was operating on you. It's only a miracle that's out of you. And not to discredit doctors, I'm thankful for them. And I think that the practice is a godly one. But where's our faith? Where's our faith? Is it in God? Because that's where their faith was. So much so that they were beaten, jailed, get arrested, be told not to talk about Jesus in that name. You can preach whatever gospel you want, or just don't talk about Jesus. That's what they're saying in China. You can have church, but you can't talk about Jesus. Take that picture of Jesus down. Can't have that cross. Got to talk about the Chinese Communist Party, and then from there, do whatever else you want. And they said, nope. We're going to talk about Jesus. And they went out and did it right after they were released. Saul's knocked over his horse. Peter has a vision about God wanting to reach the Gentiles. You know, I don't know if you've ever seen uh, Fiddler on the Roof, but there's that song about them. And he goes, unheard of, unthinkable, absurd, about, you know, them getting married. And that's my song. <laughs> but sincerely, that's what Peter's thinking to God. Unheard of. I'm not going to eat that. I... God, why would you tell me to do such a thing? And how often in the scripture do we see God tell his people to do something unheard of, unthinkable, absurd to get his point across to people who think they're doing it all right? All the things God wants to do. God says, I'm not contained by this stuff. It was supposed to be a picture of me, but you're not seeing me, so I've got to go outside the box a little bit. So Saul's knocked off his horse, Ananias is sent and goes, God, this guy murders people. You're sending me to be killed? And it's not what he said. He was obedient, but I can imagine... That's how I would feel. And what happens? Paul repents. Paul comes to faith. Scales fall off his eyes. He goes in the wilderness for a few years and really, I believe, reconciles by the Spirit all the things he spent his life learning in Hebrew school, all the things that he was about in his religious, perfect religious life. There was, this guy had it all down. He knew how to follow the rules. So much so that he persecuted those who didn't. 
So as he spent time with God in the wilderness, all those things reconciled. He goes, oh, that's what that meant. Oh, this is what God was doing. Oh, that's where God was, and that's not what God was about. And he came back and he goes, my whole, everything is rubbish. We'll read the verse later. He goes out, he meets with the church leaders. Eventually he's sent out on three missionary trips, Acts 13 and 14, uh, sorcerer, false prophet, many Jewish believers. What happens when he goes out? Does he get an award, a medal? No, there's a plot to kill him and he has to go back home. Second trip, he has a vision of a man in Macedonia who he never meets. He doesn't go, God, uh, you sent me to have this vision of this man and I haven't met him. God had, God had a plan for him. The man with the vision was just to get Paul going. Damascus, a slave girl possessed by demons, used by these guys to make money. She's freed, and they get mad at him. There's a revival, basically, in Ephesus on his third trip, where they burn all their books, their sorcery books, and the rest of the people riot against him. Jesus says, I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Not a terrorist, but to really cut down all the logical arguments of people, all the false religion, and show people who God really is. And through this, through Acts, like we see in the rest of the Bible, but I think Acts is distinct because it begins to show what God does through people who are submitted to his spirit and not just in love with him like we see in the Old Testament, right? Like a few people had his spirit and David cried, don't take it from me, but God wouldn't take it from anyone in Acts. That God uses ordinary men and women to do impossible things, extraordinary things that only God can do. Jesus said, you're going to be my body on the earth. So what does that mean? I don't think a lot of our lives, mine included, looks like Jesus' body walking around. And that's what we're supposed to be in, and as the church to work together. That God's will might be done. And all these people, the thing they had in common was they were literally changed by God. Whether it was a Roman soldier or a Jewish woman down by the river, their courses of their lives were changed forever. They were forever altered because they were on the altar. Because they knew that their old life wasn't worth anything. As much money as they had, it wasn't worth anything to follow Jesus compared to it. Their life made no sense, had no purpose if they weren't serving God. And they would never go back the way they came. Their lives would be turned around. They would repent of their old ways, but they would never go back. They would continue on the course to heaven no matter what it cost them. And Lord, as we get into your word, God, would you speak to us? Would you help us never to go back? Uh, God, give us strength when we're tired, when we're weak. God, let your word go forth. God, whether it's one person or a thousand who hear it from our lips, God, may they come to know you and come closer to you, God, that your will would be done. Uh, God, it's not about us and our name on a building or on a wall or our movement, but it's about, God, you moving through us. So, God, use your church in these last days and the end of the church age. God, use us, we pray. In the dark age, God, use us for your will and your kingdom. And come back soon, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm gonna open my. Gotta get some bottles of water. Drink this soda. Let's read the first four verses of Acts 21. It says, "Now it came to pass that when we had departed from them and set sail, running a straight course, 
We came to Kos, then following day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And finding a ship sailing over to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. And when we had sighted Cyprus, we passed it on the left, sailed to Syria, and landed at Tyre. Uh, for there the ship was unload her cargo. And finding disciples, we stayed there seven days. And they told Paul through the Spirit not to go up to Jerusalem. I've got a map here in the notes if you want to see it later. Uh, but they're sailing off the western edge of Turkey and the Aegean Sea um, uh, to Kos and Rhodes or islands. Patara is a port city, and that's the end of the line for that boat. And so they find a ship to go all the way to Phoenicia, and that's modern-day Lebanon. Uh, people still ride on ships these days, uh, cargo ships for free. or Not for free, but for cheaper than another one. But the people they left were the Ephesian elders, and these people were really close friends. In fact, uh, the wording uh, suggests it's, it's, it's not just uh, that we departed them. Oh, we depart, you know, it's like 5.30 at work. It's time to depart. You go home, you know. It's kind of a joy. It's not really like a struggle to depart unless you have a lot to do. But it was hard for them to leave these people behind. Uh, the churches that Paul started on other journeys, the elders, the believers, people that they were close with, that they loved, that uh, they did ministry with. You know, they had great fellowship with. Why, why would it be easy to leave that? And yet they knew their journey wasn't over, so it tore them away. Uh, and we'll get more into it later, but these things, it's, it's, it's not always going to be easy to do what God wants you to do. Sometimes it's going to be hurtful to, to leave and to do what, what is necessary. But they knew that their journey wasn't over. You know, these were friends in their life. Sometimes we have friends for a season we work a job, we go to a school, we're in a certain neighborhood, we know people, and we're friends with them, and maybe we're good friends with them, but just something doesn't stick, and as you go away, you just lose touch, and that's sort of the course of life. You know, sometimes you even try and reconnect, and, you know, it's just, it is what it is. But there's those who go with you, even if they haven't physically gone, and, and I've got several good friends and family who, although they haven't yet come here, and I pray that they would come here, and that God would use them here, I know God wants to do a work, and I would like to see it done through them. I know that they're here with us in heart and spirit and prayer. I think that these are those kind of people that even though you have to leave them, you know that they're still with you. But like I said, they, they sail on. They find a ship. That, you know, After a couple days, they, they sail to the bottom edge of basically Turkey. And then they have to sail all across the Mediterranean, the northeast part of the Mediterranean, to get back to the Middle East. And they find the ship that goes there. And says, as they're sailing, they sighted Cyprus. And I just picture, you know, uh, something about those words. You're on the open sea. It's the Mediterranean. It's a wooden boat. It's 2,000 years ago. You're sailing on the open ocean. There's no modern equipment. They don't even have a sextant. I looked it up. It was only invented a couple hundred years ago where they could map the stars. I'm sure they had something back in the day. The Greeks were pretty smart. The Romans were smart. They had to have some navigation to be able to have the economy the way they did. Uh, but I just, you know, I haven't done enough research to know it. But they see land. And somehow they know it's, it's uh, Cyprus. So they're, they're sailing there. They set sail. They're out there in the water. And there's nothing to see but water. And they go and they go. I don't know how long it takes to get from there to there. Probably some time, a few days at least, in the open water. And then they see Cyprus. And they go, okay, this Cyprus. Cyprus is sort of our landmark. We're not going to Cyprus, but we need to sail south of it. A lot of times it was based on weather and other things. But they, they adjust their course 
when they, they have this site in, of land that they know, this, this marker for them. And how much more important would it be in their day and age to get this course right? You know, there was no Coast Guard. A storm could come up. They got to make it at the right time. They've got cargo on this ship that needs to get there. It's their jobs. It's their livelihood. I mean, even back thousands of years before that, in the days of Job, they were sailing across the Mediterranean, uh, you know, all the way to Spain, basically. Uh, so they had this stuff kind of figured out, but it was way more of an adventure then than it is now. Um, you know, to drive across country now, it's pretty easy. There's rest stops, there's hotels, uh, you've got a car that goes 100 miles an hour, uh, all these things. In the old days, you were in a wagon, took you months and months, and probably somebody in your party died. But these guys, they had to have the right timing, the right knowledge of weather, politics of where they could and couldn't land, survival. You know, I heard a quote today from a, a military guy who I watch often, and he was just talking a quick talk about survival. He's like, these are basic skills and knowledge that kids had in the 1800s that we don't have it all day. Start a fire, make a trap, hunt an animal, you know, all these things that pro you know a lot of people out here know, but not a lot of people know in general. And you know, if the EMP goes off or a solar flare, and we go back to the 1800s, I've heard said we'll be taken back to the steam age without any steam engines. What are we going to do then? But this journey they're on was not a short journey. It was days or weeks or even more. That, you know, I remember taking a couple of missions trips to the Bahamas uh, with the youth group years ago. And yeah, it was an important trip, but you know, it's not a hard trip. It's not like I was going to some war-torn country. I was going to the Bahamas. It's, you know, even though we weren't, we did all our ministry off the fun island, we still did fun trips to Atlantis and the beach and stuff. But sincerely, the, when they went and they took this journey, it was a commitment. They didn't have a return ticket. They went out, they set out, they journeyed. They didn't know who they'd find, what they'd, who they'd meet. They only had the money they had with them. Maybe they could find an odd job along the way. Maybe they could meet some believers along the way and stay with them. But man, they, they were far more adventurous than we are today. We are very pampered. And, and I'm not complaining. I love that the air conditioning is on right now. But I think my point is that the, their lives were so different than ours. And I think some of that plays into how willing they were to be adventurous. I'm sure there were some, you know, Thessalonians talks about lazy Christians. But sincerely, I think we've lost a sense of adventure in our practical life. And so we don't expect it in our spiritual life. And when God offers us an adventure of a lifetime, we ignore it to stay practically comfort, uh, comfortable. God says, I've got so much for you. I want, this, I want you to go do this and go here. And it's what you've always dreamed about doing. You go, oh, I don't know how it's going to work, God. I have to leave all this behind, Lord. God's like, oh, I'm not going to make you go, but you're going to miss out. And just like they had to stay the course on their journey, or they'd never get back. <laughs> you know, who knows where they ended up? They'd be a slave somewhere. How much more important that we stay the course in our Christian lives. That when God lays out the next marker for us, we go for that next marker. When God lays out the next steps to take, the path to go, not to turn to the left or the right, and we do it. And we're obedient. And we know that if we do mess up, God's faithful to correct us and get us back on track. But man, heaven is not easy to get to. I think along with our comfortable life, we think that the Christian life is supposed to be comfortable and that somehow getting to heaven is easy. Now, don't get me wrong. 
We're not saved by our works. What we do for God has no merit on whether we get into heaven or not. That's all paid by God's blood. But if God gave his life for us, if God shed his blood for us, why do we expect our life to be easy for him? He's going to call us to do things that are going to be hard that we can't do on our own without his spirit, without his encouragement, without his strength, without his word. We're going to feel lost. We're going to feel tossed by the waves. And other times we're going to be on the mountains. It's going to be great. We're going to be breaking bed. We're going to be singing a hymn. But just because we're guaranteed entry doesn't mean that we're not going to have to survive the journey. God will get us there in one place, one piece. Don't get me wrong. That one piece may be nailed to a cross, like Peter, upside down. But we have to get there. And Jesus said in Matthew 7, and we know this verse, 7, 13, and 14, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find that. And that's a scary verse. This world is so easy. It's so easy to get whatever you want. Sinful and not in this day and age. In fact, they make it easier to get sinful things today than they do to get righteous things. But I, that scares me because I wonder, in my life, I know I'm going to heaven, but am I going the right way? Jesus says, cut off your arm if it causes you to sin. And I know he doesn't actually expect you to put it through the table saw or anything. That would be awful. But what he's saying is, is that, man, heaven is so important. The cause of heaven is so great. Your purpose in life is so much bigger than you understand. Pay attention. Stay the course. Ephesians 5, 15 through 17. I remember teaching a message, this verse, years ago. And liking it to spiritual grenades, spiritual landmines. It says, see then that you walk circumspectly. And that walk circumspectly means really carefully look around where you're stepping and where you're going. Not as fools, but as wise. Redeeming the time because the days are evil. Don't let anyone trick you. The days we are in are pure evil. As good as our society can be at times, we're in evil days. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. It's God's will for us that we would be careful every step. We would walk the narrow way. We would forsake all and follow him. That means forsake all. It doesn't mean that your life, you're not going to have a house. It might. But it just means forsake the life that you wanted to live and live the life for Jesus, no matter how young, no matter how old we are. This is something for every day. Just because I forsook something four or five, six, ten years ago doesn't mean that I don't need to keep forsaking that thing today, tomorrow, next year. Just like marriage. I need to keep forsaking all the droves of women that are hitting on me. And there's not any. So it's, it's not that hard. But it doesn't mean that the temptations don't come and other things like that that I need to continually forsake if I want a good marriage. And yet somehow we think if we don't forsake the ways of the world, our desires... And not that God's not going to give us the desires of our heart. I love living in Montana. I believe I had to pray so hard about it because it was like, God, can you really be giving this to me? Is this really want, what you want for me to do? It would be a dream for me to live there. And there's no way I would have made this sacrifice otherwise. It's way too hard to be away from family. Way too hard to be away from friends. If it wasn't for the gospel. But we expect our spiritual life to prosper 
if we haven't laid the groundwork at the altar of sacrifice. And sometimes that just means keep going the way you're going. I remember when times were very uncertain at a church uh, I was a pastor at, not the head pastor, but uh, on, with, you know, associated with. There was a lot of upheaval. There was turmoil. There was trouble. There was hurt. I remember God not giving me a vision, so to speak, but really clearly giving me a vision, I guess, of the, the predicament I was in. I was on the side of a cliff, and there was a little narrow rock walkway, and I had to be very careful about how I proceeded. Very slowly take a step. Very slowly take a step. People left and right were making quick judgments, quick decisions, jumping off in this camp, in that camp, and I just had to keep doing what I was supposed to be doing until God tells me that it's safe to step anywhere else. I couldn't rush to conclusions, decisions. I don't even want to do that. I mean, we see it in the pandemic. People are like, let's get back to school and work already. Guys, cases are taking off. Let's just wear a mask for a couple months. If we, if we just all put on masks and stayed home for a couple months, I know it's not always practically possible. We all, you know, people who work, you know, I have the luxury of being able to work from home. And it's affected our industry. But the point is, is like, we can't go on and pretend like nothing's going to happen and it's going to get better. It's not. But I think that's a larger problem for America as a whole, that we think things will just get better if we just let it go on its own, fester on its own, and it won't. I can remember other times in life going in a circle. God gave me a vision. I got sidetracked. And I remember looking back and physically and spiritually standing at a very similar point to where I was like a year or two before. I'm like, wow, Lord, I'm glad you brought me back to this point that I can keep going forward from now. I really wish I had spent that time walking that circle and figuring that out. But God was faithful. And if you've gone off the path, if your course hasn't been straight, if you look back and you go... I can't even tell which, you know, it's like a maze, a spaghetti loop, you know, when you don't wire up the, the hose right or the extension cord and it's just this mess or the Nintendo cables, right? That, how did it get tangled? I don't remember tangling it. I just took the controller out and played and put it back and somehow it's a spaghetti mess overnight. Sometimes life can feel like that. But God is faithful to untangle all that. I remember repeating classes in high school these are lessons I, I don't want to have to learn again. If I just did better on the test and the teacher liked me, I would have been fine. I tell you what, God loves you. He'll help you pass the test. When you realize you've already failed it. That you can't do it right. You can't make it right. You can't walk it right on your own. It has to be by His Spirit. Because as soon as you pick up that pen to write that spiritual answer down, without him giving you the words, without him giving you the answer, it might be sound nice, it might be good, it might be a good, encouraging, positive word, K-Wave. But it's not God's word. God's not a mathematician. He'll give you positives and he'll give you negatives. But there's a blessing in both of them. And sometimes these detours in life don't have a lot of spiritual consequence like the one I talked about. Sometimes it's only a little bit of wasted time. And in the end, it doesn't really matter. Does it matter that I took English class twice in high school? No. I knew, I knew, that's what was the hardest part about having to relearn. It's like, I know all this stuff. I just didn't do well on the test. Sometimes it's just 
the sacrifice of taking a little longer to get there. And you know what? By God's grace, if you run right from then on, you might just catch up and pass. Not that you can really pass other, it doesn't work that way, but I'm trying to make an illustration here. You might pass, so to speak, your companions who didn't get off of the same detour that you did. They're on the same path. You might catch up to them. Last night, we were playing phase 10 with Joanne. And she was behind. She's a good player, but she was really behind for many rounds. And then all of a sudden, she started catching up, and she almost won the game. And that can be us. We can be way behind. And if we just stay the course, keep going, playing the way we know we're supposed to play, whether we're winning or losing, you never know what could happen. You don't know what that next card in the deck is. That was always my favorite. I'm like, I know none of you are going to give me the right card. I mean, you might, but I've only got one choice my wife, and she knows what cards I want, so likely she's probably not going to give me the right cards if she's paying attention. So I know my friend is the deck because I know God controls the dice and how they end up. So there we go. And that's not an encouragement to gamble because that's not what I was doing. So I didn't always get the right card. But other times, those detours can have dire consequences. Imagine if Paul just said, you know what, I'm going to go over here today and I'm just going to go have a beer. I'm going to go gamble a little bit. It's not a big deal. You know, God will forgive me. What would have happened? You know, these things can lead to loss of life and limb. Or worse, spiritual maiming. Back to what Jesus said, it's better for you to, to lose a physical limb as awful as that would be than for you to be spiritually maimed, spiritually unable to continue the walk, spiritually stuck where you're at, and not be able to go any further down the path. Shipwrecked. Because you didn't pay attention to the signs, the weather, and my word. That we can have discipline in life. When we go off the wrong way and God's our God and our Father, He will discipline us. I can attest to that. But if we don't heed the discipline, if we don't let it correct us and hurt us deeply, that we might never do it again and we might plead with others not to go the same way, well, the only thing we have left is disqualification. And not that God can't restore, but at some point when we've gone down the path at a certain point and we diso that's, what, that's what I meant I didn't write it here it is disobedience leads to discipline which can lead to disqualification so if, if, if we've been disobedient when we know we shouldn't be disobedient it can disqualify us but worse than that worse than just being disqualified God can restore you and put you know maybe not in certain offices anymore I think of pastors who have fallen it's grieving they can never be that person that they were supposed to be again there's a huge loss and many people in the church is hurt and their families what i mean you know i don't even need to get into it but for others all those in our lives if we're disobedient it may or may not affect them in the short term if we continue in that disobedience and we don't listen to the discipline, begins to affect them more and more and more until finally our disqualification can totally derail them. And that's not in my notes. And I don't like to alliterate, so I don't know what this message is, but sincerely, perhaps it's from the Lord. Because the biggest thing I think about as a father is how my choices affect my children. 
It's overwhelming at times without the Lord. Spiritually, whether I discipline them or don't discipline them, how I discipline them, I did it right, did I not? Where to live, what to do, my life's work, my life's ministry, my example to them, how much I love them, pay attention to them, ignore them. Uh, they will all have their own choice one day. But what I do is going to affect them more than anything else in life as children. When they're older, they'll make their own decisions, right? And my, my mistakes and my sin will still have effect on them, but their path is set. Raise up a child in the way they go, well, they will not, when they're old, they will not depart from it. If I, if I hinder them as a child, that's going to affect them lifelong. And how do I know that? Because I have hurts and pains from when I was a kid, and I, that's the last thing on earth. And there's forgiveness, and there's been healing and all that. But I know that it, the things aren't the way they were supposed to be in the past. God's healed it and restored it, but there's a chunk in the past that didn't need to be that way. And I don't want that for my kids, and I don't want that to derail my kids either. And so even with my own sins and failures, I've begun to share some of them with them in a way that they can handle at their young age that I can share more and more and more with. That way it doesn't derail them. Hopefully, prayerfully, it'll keep them on the right path. That one day they're not going to get blindsided and go, Dad, you did all that? They're going to go, Dad, I, understand. I know I've seen your whole life the way you're grieved over that thing you did. And thank you for teaching me about it and telling me about it. And I pray that that's the way they handle it. Because if it wasn't for the Lord, I wouldn't be here. But that's just it. The path I was on was going nowhere. The path that the Lord has for me, even if it takes me to the middle of nowhere, and I'm alone, I'm not really alone because I'm with the Lord. My own path got me in the middle of nowhere and alone without the Lord. So what's the big deal? His path takes me in the middle of nowhere, and I'm all alone. It shouldn't be. Because... I would have been dead. I'm not dead. I'm going to heaven. I've got blessings. I'm going to follow the Lord. Because the spiritual road does not always follow the practical road. Practical road is wide. The best course of action. The most money in the bank. The most secure job. The 401k. And again, none of these things are really wrong. But again, where's our faith? Where's our trust? And not, for time, I'm not going to read it. But look at Philippians 3 if you're so inclined. But 8 and 9 says... Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, Paul says, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, not me from works. I added that last part. Because in fact, our spiritual progress, I believe, our calling from God may not make sense to anyone else. It may not even make sense to us. Times I go, Lord, what are you doing? Is this even right? And I just have to think back to what God has told me. And I'm trying to give him time to do it and keep my faith in him that he might do it. At some point I'll say, okay, this is over. It's not working. But until then, I don't want to give up before God says to give up. Because we must still go when he calls. Even if it's the middle of the night, Samuel. Even if it's to go to Nineveh, Jonah. The believers who Paul stayed with here, they knew. They knew where Paul was going. They knew what would happen in there. That God gave them a word of knowledge by the Spirit. Again, we see these gifts coming into play that we discount these days. That trouble awaited him in Jerusalem. But I think what's interesting, and I don't want to get too into it because I can't play God and the Holy Spirit, but they told him not to go. And, and for me, from just a, a simple reading of this, 
I go, I think they saw the trouble as a reason not to go. They said, Paul, in their hearts, we love you so much, Paul, and we love God so much. And God revealed to us that you're going to be in trouble when you get there. You're going to have real trouble in Jerusalem. So don't go. Please don't go, Paul. But was that God's message to Paul? God's message to Paul through them was there's going to be trouble ahead, Paul. This is not going to be an easy road. In fact, this could be the end of your road, Paul. But they took it one step further because their own hearts got involved. And I know I've done that plenty of times. I know it's been done to me plenty of times where it's clear that God is speaking this and saying this and the person or persons are interpreting it wrong. They interpret trouble as God not in it. I look at the scripture and I go, it seems more like when there is trouble, God is in it. I see when things are easy, God wasn't in it. That everything that these people go through in these, I don't know, thousand something pages is trouble. Where do we learn faith? A lot of times it's in trouble. It's easy to say you believe when, you know, you've got the winning team. But when they're down in the fourth quarter and there's no hope, you have to have real faith to think that they're going to win. And it can be wise sometimes. It can be practical. When there is trouble, it's good to consider. God, is this the right way? Are you really leading me this way? But when he gives you an answer, and it's yes, don't let the trouble stop you. Because we can't let our physical landmarks, our physical circumstances, excuse me, be our spiritual landmarks. Like moving here or work, you know? I didn't know if I was going to get a job, but I knew that we were supposed to come here and I was able to keep my job. That's God's provision. And I know we're going a little bit, this message will be a little long, but I'm all your guys' ride, so. <laughs> but I'll try and go fast to respect your time. But sincerely, Paul's trips... He was naked, shipwrecked, hungry, beaten. I think of missionaries in India who the kids are going hungry and it's hard to sleep because of the cries of their kids. I go, I don't know, Lord. I can handle a lot. I can handle a little. I can't really handle a lot, let's be honest. I don't know. I can't handle that. Because I don't think the Spirit was telling Paul not to go. I think the Spirit was making it clear to Paul that there would be trouble. And that Paul's life hadn't been easy up to this point. And it wasn't going to get any easier. Let's read the 5 through 14 and we'll close out here in a minute. And when we had come to the end of those days, we departed and went on our way. And they all accompanied us with wives and children till we were out of the city. And we knelt down on the shore and prayed. And when we had taken our leave of one another, we boarded the ship and they returned home. And when we had finished our voyage from Tyre, we came to Ptolemy, greeted the brethren, and stayed with them one day. And on the next day, we who were Paul's companions departed and came to Caesarea and entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. Now this man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. As, uh, as we stayed many days, a certain prophet named Agabus came from down from Judea. And when he had come to us, he took Paul's belt, around his own hand, bound his own hands excuse me, and feet, and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns his belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Now when we heard these things, both we and those from that place pleaded with him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? 
for I'm ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So when he would not be persuaded, we ceased, saying, the will of the Lord be done. So we see the companions earlier in the trip, uh, perhaps it's still all of them, uh, Sopaterum, Archstarchus, Secundus, uh, Gallius, Timothy, Tychicus, and Trophimus. Um, but even after the short time together, these guys were closely knit with the people they were staying with. Uh, you know, again, even Christian friends today that I met once, and yet there was a knitting there of the spirit that we still stay in touch. We still meet up uh, when we're in the same part of the country, just for a short time. And that's a real connection that, you know, you don't get very often. But I have that real connection with other believers, too, that I have spent more uh, time with. Um, but their whole families here went to say goodbye to Paul. And, you know, there's this real, a real love with the believers here. They didn't say, ah, I'll see you in the morning, you know. It was, I'm going to go with you. I'll take you to the airport. I'll, I'll go with you to the, the seaport, Paul. Even bring their kids. We all know what it's like to try and bring a bunch of kids somewhere, <laughs> especially without a minivan. But John 13, 35 talks about, you know, I know you're my disciples, you have love for one another. We know that verse. Philippians 2, 20-22, Paul talks about there's no one like-minded other than Timothy. That man, there's only going to be a few people in life that are truly like-minded with us in the Bible, and the Gospel. We need to take care of those people and pray for those people and, and go with those people. So We saw Philip the Evangelist. This is a different Philip. He had four daughters who prophesied. And oh man, I would love to see my kid. I read this and I think about man, to see my kids prophesy. And if I had four daughters, I really want them to prophesy because I'm not going to survive. I, two is enough. Four, I would lose my mind. <laughs> but we see that there's another prophet who comes, Agabus. And this prophet uh, is speaking forth God's truth. It's speaking God's word. It's speaking for God in a sense, uh, almost like a press secretary. You know, uh, you got to deal with that harsh press. You don't always say what they want you to say, what they like. You, got, you just say what God has you say, what's in your little notebook there, uh, White House Press Secretary. So I think we get scared of it because we think it's all future. Some of it is. Some of it's a word of knowledge. But really, it's just speaking forth God's word in a world that doesn't, that doesn't say anything like it. In fact, it says the opposite of God's word. Sometimes that gift can be a specific word, a rhema word for a person like here with Paul or for the church. But it can be a defining gift, like this prophet Agabus. The daughters prophesied, so I don't know if they were prophets or not. That was a spiritual gift. But during this time here, and they were known to prophesy. They were known to speak for God's truth. And this man was a prophet. This was, when he went around, when he was serving God, he was always speaking forth God's word. But everyone here had a legitimate word from the Lord. And that's important, that we listen to legitimate words of God from people who truly are prophets in nature, not in title. But what I love, I think, most in some side way, <laughs> it's not really most, but that these people were literally defined and remembered by their spiritual gifts. Agabus the prophet. When he came to town, he wasn't known as being a race car driver. He was known as being a prophet of God. And these girls, too, they were known for the things that came out of their mouth to be God's word. And what are your and my spiritual gifts? If you're unsure, if you're wavering, look at 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. And more so, do they, even, do they define us? Do they define our very life, the course of our life? Is it defined by our gifts? Not that we live for the gifts, but as God gives us the gifts, that's going to define how we walk out our faith in him, how we minister 
in him. Some are, you know, we may have one gift, we may have many. But it's our spiritual life. We wouldn't have them without the Holy Spirit in us. And as you follow God, as I follow God, we'll see that we can really do nothing that's fulfilling aside from walk in these gifts by the Spirit. And even if we're not exercising them, we're going to sense something's missing, even in our Christian walk. When we're, even if we're close with Jesus every day, if we're not exercising these gifts and using them, you know, I think back and I go, I think, obviously I still have a lot to learn. I had even more to learn years ago. But I look back and go, I wish I was encouraged more. And a lot of people did, but I feel like, and sometimes there's circles, they, there's this mentality that only a few people can do it. And then anyone else who tries to exercise, well, they haven't been appointed to do it. And, and that's what, like, my biggest heart, if God, uh, you know, brings people to, you know, to minister to, uh, is that they would raise up and be the church. Yeah, I'd be the pastor, and I'd be overseeing it. But my goal is not that to fill the seats to hear me. My goal is to fill the seats that they would literally go out, that they would fill, be fulfilled in the life that God has for them by the Spirit. Because that's how the church is supposed to work. Everyone using their gifts and, and living out their gifts. And I look back and I go, I wish I grasped this 10 years ago. Like Paul said, he's ready to die for the Lord Jesus. That it took time, it took prayer for him to understand and to be willing to do that. And I think I was just stubborn. It took time for me to accept that this is what God really had for me. And I think that so many of us as believers can't accept that this is what God really has for us. That he really has you to be a prophet, an evangelist. He really has a gift of healing or, uh, you know, a gift of apostleship to go out and start something. But he does. He really does for each one of us. There's not anything different about you and I than the people in the Bible. The only difference is we live now and they live then. It's the same God, the same spirit. Same calling. And how important it is we live by that spirit and we live our giftings out. In John 3, 8, the wind blows where it wants and you hear the sound of it, but can't tell where it comes and where it goes, so is everyone that is born of the spirit. That you're going to come and you're going to go in life when you follow God, and you're not going to be able to know what you're doing in five years. You might, but God's going to have something even better. And other people are going to look on and go, how did that be the course of your life? It is so meandering, so wandering, but it's going to be a straight course in the spirit. Because God took you exactly where you wanted to go. And it's not meandering because you just didn't know the way to go. It's because you had someone else calling the shots and leading your life. But again, this prophecy is more specific and visual. That he's going to be bound in Jerusalem. But again, they interpret it in a sense as a message not to go. As a warning. Don't go, Paul. This is going to be you. But Paul's like, I don't care if they bind me in Jerusalem. I'm already bound to God. I am a slave to God. I'm a doulos, a bond servant to God. A, a slave by choice to God. I have my freedom to go live my life, but in my freedom, I choose to, to follow God to the utmost. And so he's like, no, bond, no chains are going to hold me. I'm, going to, I'm, I'm, chain, I'm bound to go. I'm bound in the spirit to go to Jerusalem. Because Paul was sold out for the gospel. Nothing's going to stop him. And we've, when we see just how good God is and how good the gospel is and how much he really has for us, how could we not? And I ask, as Paul even says, it breaks his heart. What is going to stop you and me? Is it going to be because we have to have our heart broken a little bit? We have to give up a career we like. We have to say goodbye to loved ones or a place we grew up in. 
And we have to know that it's a word from God. Because if we go and we step out and we don't have that word, or we stop believing in that word, it's going to be too hard. It's going to cost too much. But know that when God gives you that word, and you follow it and see him work, you would probably trade it ten times over. You would have done it ten years earlier. You would have given up far more to get there, almost like at the end of Schindler's List, when in the movie Oscar Schindler says, if I could just one more watch, one more car, one more person. Man. And I like how at the end they say, the will of the Lord be done. Now that's the proper way to end a spiritual disagreement. Not starting a church, not going to just, okay, we disagree on what the meaning of this word is. Let's let the will of the Lord be done in unity. And what's the will of God? Matthew 6.10, thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. And do we really want that? I know we do. I know deep down we do. But I think we also know sometimes it's going to take more sacrifice than we're willing to pay. Don't let physical circumstances prevent you and me from blowing away the chaff in our lives and the work of the enemy. Because as you follow God, the things that you're afraid that are never going to happen, the people that you care so much for, you're not going to reach them if you're not following God. But if you follow God, even if it takes you away from them, you will reach them. Because it's by the Spirit, for the Spirit, and in the Spirit. Amen? Amen. So, God, would you uh, just seriously, Lord, let your kingdom come, your will be done. And not to be overdramatic, God, but God, if there's things that we need to let go of in life, let us let go of them and hold on to you because you're worth it. No matter what the cost, God, let us say that. And it's easy for me to say that now. I haven't lost a lot. I've lost some things as I say goodbye to other things. But God, there's still things that I care most dearly, dearly about. And I pray you don't take them from me like Job. But God, may I say, God, that your will be done on earth as in heaven. And we all say. So God, come soon, we pray. We can't for, wait for that day when your will really totally 100% is here. And heaven <laughs> takes over earth. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So may God bless you and keep you and his face shine upon you. There is a vineyard of the Lord. There is a vineyard for our soul. With all our troubles left behind the door, we drink first light.